0: Acts chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what your spirit has superintended at the hand of Luke, for the sake of Theophilus, his original audience, and for the sake of us, your church today, we pray that, Father, be careful with your word, that we would tremble at your word, knowing that this is the very Word of God. Remember that we're under your Word. We'd give thanks. We pray that you'd give us clarity in our thought about it. That you would transform us by the working of your Spirit to love your Son and His church. To understand the priorities that the apostles had and the priorities that our churches today ought to have so that your Son would be exalted in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how you feel as you read the book of Acts or as, as you've heard us go through this book of Acts, but, but as I read through the book of Acts, I generally have a growingly deep desire to see the kind of powerful evangelistic work I see happening in Acts. In other words, I, as I read Acts, I'm convicted about even... My desire that the church not keep growing here because I think, man, it's getting bigger and bigger, and and I'm I'm getting more and more out of my depth on how to shepherd all of these people and how to administrate that growth and care for people, etc. And then I read through the Acts of the Apostles and I think to myself, um, this church in Jerusalem has reached tens of thousands of people, and the apostles are still just completely focused on reaching even more. And as I read it, I think, man, I I want to see that kind of evangelistic fervor and even more importantly than the evangelistic fervor, I want to see that kind of evangelistic effectiveness happening in the church today. After hearing Peter's sermon at Pentecost, look at Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this. After hearing Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we see at least 3,000 people Saved. This is the first sermon in the book of Acts. Well, the first evangelistic sermon. There's one short one that Peter gives in chapter 1 about the appointing of a 12th apostle, but this is the first evangelistic sermon we see in the book of Acts. And look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, this isn't just 3,000 souls of people who made a private profession of faith, i.e., they thought to themselves, I ought to believe this and went about their merry way. This is 3,000 souls who believed the word, who were publicly baptized, being publicly known, and who were added to the local visible church. 3,000 that day. Can you imagine if our church grew by 3,000 people in one day? I mean, I, I just can't even imagine how we would even begin to deal with that. 3,000 added that day. Not just 3,000 people who came and said, yep, yeah, I believe that, that sounds good. But 3,000 people who came and believed and were baptized and were a part of the local visible church whom the apostles then, it tells us, go on to teach, not only in the temple, preaching evangelistically, but from house to house. And I think, what must that have been like for them? Day by day, going house to house, teaching 3,000 souls. Exhausting, to say the least. Then we see the second sermon. After hearing the preaching of Peter and John and Solomon's colonnade, which we read in Acts chapter 3, we hear this summary that comes In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, if you look there, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Peter and John have been preaching for hours, several hours in Solomon's colonnade after healing a lame man, and we hear this, verse 4 of chapter 4, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men, just the males, came to about 5,000. Now scholars don't know if this is a 5,000 men who got saved in addition to the 3,000. Or if it's when you add 3,000 plus around 2,000 more, you have 5,000. They don't know. The grammar is a little bit difficult to unwind here. The point is, minimally, you have 5,000 men in the church at this point, in Jerusalem, minimally. Not, cl- not including women and not including children. You have 5,000 men, minimally. Potentially, you have 8,000 plus men, not including women and children. This is tremendous growth. Tremendous. And it's coming at them fast. As the apostles continue their preaching and teaching ministry, in the face of persecution that begins here in chapter 4, they begin to be persecuted, but they continue their preaching and teaching ministry. And we read this in Acts chapter 5, if you look there in verse 14, and more than ever, More than ever, remember the two previous times we're getting summaries of the evangelistic effectiveness of the apostles? First it's 3,000, then it's 5,000 men, and now it's more than ever. That's the language. What does that mean? It means more than ever, more than 3,000, more than 5,000. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, now the emphasis comes, of both men and women. In other words, this is just taking off everywhere. This is just the church in Jerusalem. Then uh, we come upon our scene today that we're looking at today in chapter 6, and we read this at the end of chapter 5 after the disciples or the apostles received a beating, after the apostles received this um, scourging. We read this in verse 42, and every day of chapter 5, verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house... Now, the temple is the focus on, they were preaching to the church there, but there's a real focus evangelistically here. Every day in the temple and from house to house, this focus is more on doctrinal instruction of the believers. They did not cease teaching, that's teaching the doctrine, and preaching, that's more evangelistic, Jesus as the Christ. That's what they're doing. And what's the response to that? Verse 1 of chapter 6, look there. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Again. They're preaching day, house to house, day to, and the disciples are what? Increasing in number. Now look at verse 7 in case, of chapter 6. In case you haven't noticed the remarkable growth in the church, look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. That's the idea that the church is growing because the word of God is evangelistically being effective. It's spreading, and I'll get into that later, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a remarkable statement I don't want you to throw away. In the previous passage, what are the priests doing? They're telling the disciples, or the apostles, to be quiet about Jesus, They're scourging them, the religious leaders. And now we're told by Luke that as they continue their evangelistic efforts, a great many of the priests are even being saved. The very people persecuting them. There are thousands of priests in Jerusalem, by the way. This doesn't say a great many of the Sanhedrin were being saved, so I want to make a bit of a distinction there. But the point that Luke is getting at is, you just saw the religious leaders in Israel torturing the apostles and telling them to shut up. And now, as they continue to preach in the temple and teach day by day and house from house to house, what's happening is even a great number of the priests are being saved. From Acts 2 through Acts 6, we have basically watched the church flourish in Jerusalem and Judea. It's been flourishing. Now, after this passage here in Acts 6, you're going to begin to see an emphasis on the church moving or the evangelistic message moving outside of Jerusalem and Judea, going towards Samaria, etc. You're going to see that emphasis begin to change. It doesn't change immediately, but it begins that transition. But from Acts 2 through Acts 6, we've basically watched the church flourish in Jerusalem and Judea as the apostles have continued to relentlessly preach the gospel. The Spirit has powerfully been on the move to save many. And and my deep desire as I read this is that the Spirit would be pleased to similarly move here. It's my desire. I'd love to see the Spirit move in Bakersfield the way He's moving in the Jerusalem church here. I want to see many people saved, no matter how much of a mess that makes. You've got to imagine the church of Jerusalem's a mess. I want to see the church grow in this way. And I don't mean just the local church of sovereign grace. I mean Christ's church in Bakersfield. Now, I know the Lord was doing a particular, a particular redemptive work in history as he was establishing the church in Jerusalem. I realize that. So I have, I want you to hear this because you're gonna, you're gonna have to hear my nuancing here. I have zero expectation. You're going to say, don't you have any faith? Just listen to the whole thing. (laughs) Listen to the whole thing. I have zero expectation that if we do what the apostles did then, then what would happen is the Spirit will guarantee that He will do among us exactly what He did among them. I have zero expectation that if we preach and pray like the apostles, That that is some kind of math equation that equals the same gospel effectiveness that happened among the apostles in Jerusalem during that redemptive historical era. This is a time in which the Spirit is bursting forth on the scene as He's poured out by the risen Lord to begin to build the foundation of what becomes the Christian church across the world. So clearly it's remarkable Clearly, it's, it's not something that's repeatable. However, however, I have full expectancy. Hear that? Zero expectation. Now I'm going to tell you my full expectancy. I have full expectancy that if we share the means used by the apostles and the early church, if we share their means, preaching and prayer, then the Spirit will bless those means 100% expectancy that the Spirit will bless the means that the apostles used if we use them as well. The Spirit has given means for effective ministry to the church. You might call these means means of grace. They are means that the Spirit employs to minister justifying and sanctifying grace to His people. And the apostles in the early church were committed to those means. The Spirit of the Lord has given us means. Hear that? The Spirit of the Lord has given us means that we are to employ, and while the Spirit of the Lord determines the ends, while He determines how He blesses those means, we can be assured that He will bless those means. Now, you may be an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others, and that might be depressing for you to hear. Nobody wants to be the aroma of death to people as they preach the gospel, right? But the Spirit guarantees, the Spirit guarantees that He will bless the means He's given. How He blesses them, that's up to His sovereign good pleasure. But He will. So, what are those means? Matthew Poole, who was a Puritan 17th century commentator, once said that the pastor, and he's talking about the means of grace here, is as he was commentating on Acts 6 that the pastor has two employments, two works really, two employments. He speaks to God on behalf of the people. It's prayer. Speaks to God on behalf of the people, that's prayer. And he speaks to the people on behalf of God, that's preaching. Two employments. speaks to God on behalf of the people and speaks to the people on behalf of God. Mind you, as I read that and let that soak in, that was a really sobering thought for me. I speak to the Lord on your behalf and I speak to you, probably more frightening to me, I speak to you on on his behalf. These are the two means to which the apostles and the church were committed. They were absolutely committed to the means of grace the means of preaching the word and prayer. And I want you to notice that in both cases of preaching the word and prayer, what is central is the word. Why do I say that? We pray the promises of the word to God on behalf of the people. And we preach the promises of the word to the people on behalf of God. In other words, I am arguing that it's critical for the church to grasp that we are a creature of the word. The word creates the bride of Christ, the church. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. The church is born as the prayers of Christ's people reach the ears of Christ. And as the word of Christ reaches the ears of Christ's people. And the apostles and the early church are fundamentally committed to this truth. And I want you to see that commitment in two ways. One, I want you to see this by understanding the overall flow and context of this passage. So the first major thing we're going to do is look at the overall flow and context of this passage. And then second, we're going to consider four commitments of the church which are necessary to effectively employ these means of grace. Now I want you to hear this. The second point is going to be four commitments or priorities of the church. They're going to come fast because they're just quick applications. The first point I want to make is the overall flow and context of the passage, and, and I want you to see why I handle it this way. So let's look at the first, let's look first at the overall flow and context of the passage. And there are three contexts of the passage, I want, or three facts of the context I want you to see right at the beginning. Look at verse one. The first fact of the context here, you need to notice, is an inclusio. Now you may not know what an inclusio is. You guys ever heard of an inclusio? And Inclusio is a Hebrew literary device. It's like bookends. If you guys have a book, a shelf full of books, you might, if you have a shelf full of books, arrange like all of your books between two bookends of a certain type. So here's between these two bookends, I put all my systematic theology books. And between these two bookends, I put all my historical theology books. And between these two bookends, I put all my biblical theology. And you guys might be going, That's, those aren't the kinds of books I own. That's fine. Between these, those are the kind of books I own. <laughs> Between these two bookends, I put all my sci-fi novels. And between all these two bookends, I put all my whatever novels. Okay, you know. So the point is, is that between the bookends, you generally have some kind of theme that, that, that's being bookended. And that's what inclusio does. And so I want you to see that literary device here. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in these days, now notice the next phrase, when the disciples were increasing in number. Or the disciples are greatly multiplying. Now keep your eye on verse 1 and at the same time look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And notice the next phrase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In other words, in verse 1 and verse 7 we have an inclusio, a set of bookends. The disciples are increasing in number. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. This whole passage is being bookended. There's an inclusio around it that's focusing on us in on the continued, explosive, evangelistic growth of the church in Jerusalem. More and more people are being saved. And and notice the important detail that comes at the end, and a great many of the priests in verse 7, a great many of the priests were becoming saved or believing. Becoming obedient to the faith. That means they were believing the gospel. The gospel continues to go forth powerfully is what Luke's telling us. So powerfully that those who oppose the apostles are even being saved. In the previous scene, the religious leaders are opposing them and now they're being saved. And Luke wants us to understand that in some way this scene, which is captured from verse 1 through verse 7, in some way this scene... In some way, what happens here in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, contributes to the continued spread of the gospel. I want you to hear that. He wants you to get a hold of the fact that in some way what's happening here in verse 1 through 7 is contributing to the continued expansion or spread of the gospel. And what we see here is directly related to the effective use of the means of grace which lead to the salvation of many. Now look at the next, I want to look at the first phrase in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, that's the second fact of the context here. First fact of the context, this inclusio. Second fact of the context, now in these days. Well, in what days? You ought to ask yourself that question. You get a transition like this, one of the unhelpful things about chapter and verse markers is you start chapter 6 as if it's its own independent unit, not connected to chapter 5 before it. And so you read, now in these days, and, and if, you're, if you read anything like me, you forget what just happened, because chapter 6 started, in these days, and you just imagine some vague days, you don't know, what some days. In these days somewhere, these things happen. What days? In these days. That demonstrative pronoun is, is pointing you back to something intentionally. What is it? In these days, what days? It's the days that you just read about in verse 41 and 42 of chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council, these are the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So what are the days? In In the days, the apostles were preaching and teaching while under persecution. In these days, the number of the disciples increased. Further, as we'll see in this scene, the emphasis falls clearly upon freeing up the apostles to continue this preaching and prayer. And and we'll see this emphasis again in verse 7 of of Acts chapter 6. Look there again. First phrase of verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. In other words, the Word of God is going forth powerfully from the apostles and, and many are being saved and being added to the church. The Word of God is increasing, is synonymous with the saying that God's Word is spreading. It's being heard unto the salvation of many. It echoes the language. Are you guys familiar with the parable of the sower? The sower goes out to sow the seed and he's casting the seed about. The, the image you get is that he's, he's just casting the seed about. And as he's casting about, it's falling on different kinds of soil. And the first three soils don't produce any fruit. The fourth soil is good soil, and it does. And so, what you end up with really are two soils at the end of the day one that produces fruit and one that doesn't. Just three varieties of non fruit producing soil and one variety of fruit producing soil, right? The sower, and we're told by Jesus that the seed is the word of God. And so this echoes that language. The Word of God continued to increase, to greatly multiply. As the seed is being sown throughout Jerusalem and Judea, as the Word of God is being cast out among the people, we get this imagery that it's falling a lot on good soil. And it's multiplying. It's bearing fruit. Many are being saved. So that second context, now look at the third fact of context. Chapter 6 and verse 1, a complaint arises. You know a complaint's always coming, right? Israel's brought out ten plagues. God redeems them with much treasure and all their families. Brought out of Egypt. God drops food literally from heaven every day. Water springs out of rocks to give them drink. They went through a Red Sea. They watched it part and drowned Pharaoh's army. God speaks to them from a mountain, and what do we keep finding them doing? Complaining. Why does God drop bread from heaven every day? I would like some meat. Remember back in Egypt we ate meat? And the Lord is like, all right, you want some meat? I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out of your nose. And then they complain about all the meat they're eating. Right? This is, and you read that and you can say, oh, what is wrong with Israel? <laughs> you better recognize that they're a type that, that, uh, of person that you are. God is blessing you all over the place. And there's always a time for complaints. The church is rapidly increasing. People are being saved By the thousands, and people are still complaining, don't think there's a day coming in which our church is so evangelistically effective that the Spirit is so powerfully at work healing many people of diseases, casting out demons, people being saved left and right, that complaints will not arise. They will arise no matter what. And a complaint arises here. Let's look at the complaint now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. That's the Hellenists are the Greek speaking Jews. So they're called Hellenists. They're Jewish, but they're Greek speaking Jews. By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Those are the Hebrew speaking Jews. Because their widows, in other words, the Greek speaking Jewish widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. If you remember, the apostles had told the church, bring your gifts for the help of and care of the poor, those who are in need. Bring them and lay them at our feet, and we as the apostles will then distribute those needs to whoever has uh, those gifts to whoever has need. You guys hopefully remember that from the context. The apostles, the gifts were brought to them, laid at their feet, and then they distributed to the poor as was needed to care for the poor. And, um, And in the midst of this, this complaint comes. The Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were complaining that their widows were not being cared for properly. While the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians were having having their widows cared for properly. In other words, the Greek-speaking widows were not getting the daily food distribution. And the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting the daily food distribution. Now, who's distributing the food? Who has general oversight? The apostles. Now, we don't know if this accusation that's coming is merely one about poor administration due to a communication problem. Maybe the complaint is poor administration due to a communication problem, like because these widows don't speak Hebrew, there's a communication gap that's happening. Maybe. We don't know if that's the issue. Or if there's a deeper accusation that the Greek-speaking widows are being skipped in daily distribution because they don't speak Hebrew. You guys follow me, the distinction there? That the Hebrews are holding it over to the Greek-speaking widows for not essentially speaking. We don't know, in other words, if this is a, a kind of claim of bias that the apostles are showing or it's just a claim of bad administration. Either way, whether you're calling the apostles of the Lord poor administrators and complaining about them, or even more troubling, saying that they're overlooking people because of the language they speak, that they have a bias against a particular language group. Either way, the charge is pretty serious. What we do know is a couple things. We know the apostles were responsible for distributing what was, contributed, what was being contributed to the needs of the body. We know they were responsible for that. The people always laid their gifts to their feet. We also know there was a whole group of Greek-speaking widows. The second thing we know, the whole group of Greek-speaking widows who were not receiving the daily distribution. Now that's a serious problem that arises in the church. The apostles, and thus the early church, were falling down on the job in some way. Did you hear that? The apostles, and thus the early church, were falling down on the job. It is a serious thing that some of the widows were not being cared for. The Bible is clear, clear about the need to care for widows. Poor widows in particular. Those whose families can't care for them. This isn't a day and age in which they have Social Security and Medicare. If they're, as widows, not being cared for, by rich family members because they're poor widows, then they're destitute if the church doesn't help them. They don't eat if others don't give them food. It's a serious problem and the apostles were falling down on the job and complaints began to cause division between two groups of Christians. Notice that the Hellenists complained about the Hebrews. In other words, it wasn't just a complaint about the apostles. It's a complaint these two groups begin to divide and complain about each other. There may have been an ascription of motives. My guess is there likely was an ascription of motives. It's a form of, I want you to hear this, this is a form of spiritual warfare that is beginning to take place. We might think that complaints are no big deal, But I want you to understand that complaints can destroy a community. They can bring division between members of a community. They can undermine confidence in leadership in a community. Most importantly, complaints bring disrepute to the name of the Lord to whom we ought to be thankful. Satan, I want you to hear this, Satan wants to undermine the integrity of the church's ministry. Satan is alive. You need to know this from Ephesians 6. Satan is alive, Paul tells us, and his demonic forces are actively at work trying to destroy us. Now, how are they doing that? By lying to Christ's people, by giving false accusations to Christ's church to destroy our love for one another, to destroy our trust in authority and to destroy, probably most particularly, our thanksgiving toward and reliance upon Christ. Further, Satan wants to distract us from what is primary in the church. He doesn't have to tear you apart to, to distract you, right? To get his work done, he just has to turn your gaze a little bit from what the primary priority is. Just a little bit. If I could just turn their gaze. That's one of the dangers of building a church. We own land. We have plans. Maybe we'll build a building someday. It'd be great to be able to do that if the Lord provides. And we may pull the trigger on that at some point as a congregation. But we all better be ready that once you start building a church building, it is very easy for you to lose focus as to why you're doing what you're doing. Just a little turn this way and you're distracted from the mission of the church. He doesn't have to cause great sin in the body to distract us. You guys understand that? Just turn us a little bit. Satan wants to hinder the spread of the gospel. Satan wants to slow down the preaching and prayer ministry of the apostles. And so Satan brings a complaint through the people about a real problem that exists for the purpose of d- distracting the apostles from preaching and prayer. And the apostles recognized this complaint, though necessary to resolve, could distract them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. And the 12, that's, by the way, I think maybe the only, if there may be one other instance of where the apostles are referred to as the 12 here, but I think they're referred to as the 12 here to set them off against the seven who are about to be named in the book of Acts. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, in other words, the church. They summoned, they brought together the church and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now I want you to hear... What was said here, the apostles know that their supreme responsibility is to preach the gospel and to pray. It is to speak to God on behalf of the people and to speak to the people on behalf of God. But this does not mean that they find this complaint an unnecessary concern to resolve. They they find it a necessary concern to resolve. They know that God cares for the poor and the widows and, and the church must care for the poor widows as well. They know that. Thus they come up with a resolution. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the, the people are to choose seven men, later in Acts referred to as the seven. So there's the twelve in Acts and there's the seven. And these men are to be full of the Spirit. And notice this interesting, like, add-on. Of all the things they could have said, they could say full of the Spirit and love, full of the Spirit and faith, right? Full of the Spirit and hope. But what does it say? Full of the Spirit and what? And Wisdom. And we, we want to ask, we, we, we tend to understand why they need to be full of the Holy Spirit, because they need to be, they need to be born again, Spirit-indwelled believers. We get that. But why single out Wisdom. And I just want you to stop and consider the context. The context is you have a multilingual, massive, and growing church that has to be cared for with needs that need to be taken care of. And that presents major pastoral and diaconal, diaconal, you ever heard of that word? I didn't just create it. I didn't. I I looked it up just to make sure I wasn't making it up. It's it's referring to deacons or service, if you will, the care of the widows. They have major pastoral and diaconal care among the concerns among a massive, multilingual, growing church. Guess what that's going to require? Wisdom. They're going to need a lot of wisdom pastorally care for these people. A lot of wisdom. Further, at least two of these men will preach in the midst of opposition and they will need wisdom to do so. Later on, as Stephen preaches, you're going to hear about Stephen's wisdom coming up again as people are confounded by his wisdom. Now, now look at Acts 6-4. But we... Notice this phrase again. Verse 2, they've said it. We want to preach the word of God and pray. Now look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves, that's the apostles, the 12, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They continue to emphasize this, preaching the word in prayer. In other words, church, the apostles are saying, we need to care for this problem of poor Greek widows but we don't want to care for the problem of the poor Greek widows in a manner that will distract us from preaching the Word and prayer. So let's appoint some other godly men to take care of this diaconal care need. Now now some scholars will argue that these are the first deacons, that these seven that are appointed here are the first deacons. I, I don't think that's quite right. Let me tell you my reasons why they aren't called deacons here. That would be one reason that it's not called deacons here. Two, they take on some important preaching roles. Three, they are specifically in Acts called the seven. In some way, they're different. They're unique in a manner. What I'm saying is these seven are unique in a manner akin to the 12 or the apostles. So I do think, I want you to hear this. I do think there's a division of labor here between the apostles, or the twelve, and the seven, which lays the groundwork for the future division of labor, which we would call the elders, roughly corresponding to the apostles, and the deacons, roughly corresponding to the seven. I do think that groundwork's being laid, but I think we want to be careful about not making too direct a correspondence, because your elders or pastors are not apostles, and your deacons are not the seven. Okay, in fact, we only have one, so he can't be the seven. He's trying. So how does the church respond to the suggestion of appointing seven, the seven, to care for these widows? Look at verse 5 and 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. And of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see why that's necessary for Stephen later on in this passage. I'm not getting to today, but next week. Full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These seven men that are listed here, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles did. They I want you to know first that the church is pleased by the apostles' suggestion. Hear that. The church was pleased. They were... Now, what does that tell you? They were also committed to the apostles not being distracted from preaching the word in prayer. They're committed to that, equally committed. And they were also committed to the pastoral and diaconal care needs of the widows. They were also committed... They weren't muttering under their breath, oh, those apostles, they, they, they think they're above serving tables. Such pride. Such pride. That, that's, they weren't muttering that under their breath. They were pleased with the suggestion. They weren't thinking, how come you apostles can't take time to get off of your high horse and get down here and serve tables with us? That's not what's said. They're pleased by the suggestion They believed that there's nothing more humble and central than a church with leaders who are committed to the Word of God and prayer. This doesn't mean the apostles, Now I want you to hear this, especially if you're a young guy thinking about being a pastor. One of the things that we look for, by the way, is do you care for simple needs of people before we're calling you up into leadership? Like, if you're a young guy and you want to know what we're looking at, Do you show up to set up or tear down? Will you get your hands dirty? We do look at that. Will you serve in small ways? Because I don't want you to think the apostles never got in there and served in these small ways. In fact, it's precisely because the work became too great for them, as they were the ones doing all the distribution, that they had to employ other men to help them, that they had to divide the labor up. In other words, the assumption is they were the ones primarily doing this, until the church just got too big and they had to divide the labor. The church was committed to pastoral and diaconal care for the body. They wanted the Greek-speaking widows to be cared for and so did the apostles, so they approved of this resolution that would allow for the preaching and prayer to continue while also providing diaconal and pastoral care needs. Thus they, the congregation, notice that, the congregation, chose seven men. The congregation chose. Listen, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. Who's picking them out? The congregation from among you. Seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They chose seven men, all with Greek, by the way, all with Greek and Hellenistic names. All of them had Greek names. Which likely means they all spoke Greek, which is a good choice given that which widows need to be cared for. The Greek-speaking ones. They're the ones being underserved. And the apostles commissioned and ordained these seven men to the ministry of diaconal and pastoral care for the body. Now, here's the primary point I hope you're gathering through all this. I hope you're not missing. The focus throughout this passage, the focus throughout this passage is the Spirit worked through the means of preaching the Word in prayer. It's what He works through. Thus, the apostles and the church must remain committed to preaching the Word and prayer. But in order for them to remain committed, in order for them to remain unhindered in their gospel proclamation, in their doctrinal teaching, in their prayers, the church and her leaders also had to make corresponding commitments. Do you guys hear that? They had to make corresponding commitments. So I, I thought about preaching this as six points. Spending a lot on the first two, which I just did, and then really quickly going over the next four. And the reason I thought about it is to say, well, they had the priority of preaching the Word, they had the priority of prayer, and then they had these other four priorities I'm about to tell you, or commitments. But then I thought, no, be, my pr- concern about that is I'm going to make those two first two priorities basically parallel with the other four. And so I thought... I've got to stop and say, wait a minute. These other four commitments are subordinate commitments or priorities that serve the general priority, which is the word is preached and prayed. They serve that. They're not exactly equal to. They're actually the supreme commitments, and these are subordinate commitments. These commitments are not in themselves the means of the word increasing in many being saved, not in themselves. However, these commitments are necessary. I want you to hear this. These four subordinate commitments, while not the supreme means that the Spirit is using, they're not the means the Spirit is using to bring about salvation of the many or the sanctification of the many, they're still necessary. They're still necessary to the integrity of the church. They're necessary to the church loving one another and others well. They're necessary to the apostles being freed up to preach and pray. And by way of application, I think it's important for us as a church to answer what are the commitments or the priorities to which we must attend if we hope to see the ministry of the Word unhindered so that it might increase to the benefit of believers growing and unbelievers being saved. What are those four subordinate commitments? I want to give you these four subordinate priorities or commitments briefly. The first one is this the commitment or priority of pastoral and diaconal care. In other words, the the commitment or priority, whatever word you want to pick, of pastoral and diaconal care. They understood, the apostles in the church understood, that for the apostles to be able to preach the word effectively and pray effectively, that they needed to care for the needs of the body. The financial needs, the emotional needs, the physical needs. This needs to be handled with wisdom so as not to, create, not to create dependency, but it needs to be handled. And if we're going, I just want you to hear this, if we're going to retain integrity as a church, we have to care for one another well with wisdom. That isn't easy you can be guaranteed we will all fall down at some point in caring for one another because we won't always act wisely. But we have to be committed to caring for one another. It's a priority. We're commanded to love one another well. We have a pastor whose whole job is dedicated to pastoral counseling and to training others to speak well into one another's lives because we need to care for one another well. That doesn't mean that that pastor will always do it right. He has and will err. I have and will err as I preach. He has and will err as a counselor, as he trains others. I, have, I thank God the first six years of my sermons when I was a youth pastor were not recorded and can be found nowhere. I thank God. Some of you are a result of those six years. I'm sorry. I love you. Hopefully God has unwound some of that as you've been here. By his grace, I think he shielded many of you from some of the dumber things I said. But the fact is that we, men err. That doesn't mean, however, that we don't need to be duly committed to the responsibility or the priority to preach the Word faithfully and to provide faithful pastoral care. I, I feel like Jason and I, Jason is the pastor, are like, the, are, are like right and left hands almost. I, I'm, I'm essentially providing counsel from the Word to everybody all at once, and if I do my job well and the Spirit really attends to that, then there's less of you that have to see Him frequently. But it's still a fact that sometimes if I do my job well, it stirs stuff in you and more of you see Him. Right? So He's not quite sure if He wants me to do my job well or not. But anyway. (laughs) No. No, He is. Yeah. (laughs) That's a joke. I hope you know. All right. We have a mercy ministry budget to help folks in financial need. We we have a pastor dedicated to raising up teams of leaders in our church to build systems of care and mutual encouragement. Our primary one being grace groups. John Bryant, his whole life is focused here in building teams of leaders that provide systems of care and, and, and mutual encouragement so that the word that's preached here is then spoken into one another's lives throughout the week. The three of us see that team as necessarily intertwined. All ministers of the Word, though doing different roles, or if you will, um, carrying out different responsibilities as ministers of the Word. All necessary to what we're trying to accomplish here. We have that so we can care for one another well. And that leads to the next priority To provide good pastoral and diaconal care, we must have the second priority is this, the commitment or priority of the division of labor, that dividing labor. You guys heard of the division of labor? We don't know what division of labor is anymore, I think, in our culture because we have Google. I don't need a doctor anymore because I can Google it and become an Internet expert. Never mind that guy went to school for like 12 years and studied that. I I looked it up and Googled it myself, and I know more than him now because I spent an hour reading Google articles I found. I, I've spent days reading them. Who cares about all that training that guy got? Right? We don't even know what a division of labor is. I, 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 I mean, like I'm a one-stop shop. You don't need to go to anybody else for anything because I can do it all. That's, we want to be omnicompetent people. You're not. Let me, let me just tell you this. You are not competent at everything. In fact, there's a lot of things you're bad at. Do you hear that? Let me give you your good news for today. There are many things you are terrible at. And everybody around you knows it, whether you do or not. And that's okay. Embrace it. That's why God gave us one another. That's why he gave us each other, to divide up the labor. That's what Paul gets after in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, that God has gifted us differently, he's created us differently, and, if you will, given us new birth and gifted us differently for the purpose of filling in the gaps for each other and helping one another. We have to be committed to a division of labor. We need a variety of of folks with a variety of skills and gifts who care for a variety of needs. Not all of this can be handled by one leader nor one type of leader. We don't need two or three of me. It would be ugly. Anyway, it's a whole (laughs) other topic. Thus, we attempt to place godly men and women in leadership positions to provide this kind of care. We have men and women who serve in a variety of pastoral and diaconal roles. Yes, you heard me say that. Women do pastor each other. You know that, right? They don't have to have the office of elder or pastor to pastor one another. You're all pastoring somebody. In some way, you are shepherding, encouraging somebody in the word. We have men and women who do those things. We believe that all the members bear responsibility in this. We are all called to, commanded to, fulfill the one another's of Scripture toward one another. And in order for us to have a division of labor, we have to have pastors and deacons and members. And we understand that each of those groups plays different roles in the body, which leads to the third commitment, which is a commitment or a priority of qualified leadership. I just want to state this as quickly as I can. We at Sovereign Grace are committed to taking our time to raise up leaders who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Committed to taking our time. I want you to hear that. We're committed to taking our time. Why? Because we want godly, biblically qualified leaders who are theologically sound. We must know people in order to know that about them. Wisdom is not something that you find out someone has by giving them a theological exam. You understand that? Or about having a nice lunch with them? You see wisdom played out in their life. So you have to know them for a while. It takes time. If that frustrates you because you're a young leader chomping at the bit for a leadership post, then your impatience is yet more evidence of why we ought to take our time. See what I just did there? Anyway, all right. Fourth, we have a commitment or a priority of congregational participation. The commitment or priority of congregational participation, some people call this the commitment to congregationalism as a particular type of church government. Whether or not you're a local church that has a congregational church government, the fact is we all are asking our members to participate in choosing our office-holding leaders. Thus, we bring our elder and deacon candidates before you for approval, prior to ordaining them to those offices. As a church, we have to remain committed to the idea that you, the members, are not some group of fleshly children who we cannot trust. I've had pastors actually tell me that you don't let your children choose what they're eating for dinner because they'll choose junk food. Therefore, you don't let your members Make important decisions because they, they are just like your kids. They'll pick what harms them. Wow, that's a terrible assessment of one's congregation. And an incredibly inflated assessment of yourself as a pastor. You don't know how to make wise decisions because you're like fleshly children. Let me care for you. You'll choose Fruit Loops. And you need Vegetables and you don't know it's good for you, and here I am. Thank God I've arrived, right? I've heard elders, not not ours here, by the way, not ours, but I've heard elders say that the sheep, they actually say this, sheep are stupid animals. And God calls the, the, the Christian in the church sheep. And what he means by that is they're stupid animals. And we're those whom God has appointed as shepherds, and we need to keep those stupid sheep from making bad decisions. I've actually heard people said that to me. Now listen, that kind of thinking is not shared by the apostles. It's not shared by the apostles. Here they tell the stupid sheep to go ahead and choose out leaders. It's not shared by our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. He never in Scripture emphasizes that you're called sheep because sheep are stupid animals. Never. That is never an emphasis. Sheep are stupid animals. What should I call you? You're stupid people, I'll call you sheep. That is never the emphasis. And thus, it should never come out of the mouths of his under shepherds. Never. That's why I so appreciated Ian Hamilton when he was here stressing to the pastors Pastors, you are sheep first before you are shepherds. Mind that. Rather, our church members are believing, born-again, spirit-indwelled adults whom we can trust in decisions that are made by the church because we trust the Spirit of the Lord who indwells them. We trust the Lord who sits on His throne. Thus, we will look to you to help with these things. When we're making a budget or appointing an elder or deacon, or building a church facility, or resolving a diaconal care need, or coming alongside a family, or greeting visitors, or helping with some task, whether small or great, we are going to look to you to help us. Why? Because our calling is clear, and we want to be unhindered in our calling, and you want us to be unhindered in our calling. We'll preach the Word and pray. We'll speak to, you on behalf, to God on your behalf and then speak to you on His behalf. And we will together trust the Holy Spirit to use those means of grace to justify and sanctify the many. This is going to be a rough ending, but I'm way over time. So the plane is circled. It's just going to fall right on the tarmac. Out of this, Nothing smooth coming in here. It's just over. That's it. End of the sermon. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ, justifying us, declaring us righteous, and forgiving us of our sins, adopting us as your children, redeeming us, in Your Son, bringing us into the body of Christ, uniting us to Your Son so that by the Spirit so that we are members of this body, the Bride of Christ, the church, for whom He laid down His very life. We're thankful that Your Spirit superintended Your Word. We pray that You would keep us relentlessly focused on the means of grace, of proclaiming the Word and, and prayer. And that we would take care of these other priorities that are necessary in the church so that the, the proclamation of the Word and prayer might continue unhindered so that many might be saved. And Your name exalted in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. For His sake. Amen.